On this episode of Six Queens, we are going to be talking about some subjects that listeners might find sensitive. Particularly, we are going to be talking a lot about human remains. So if you are squeamish, you might want to skip this episode. Just a warning. I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. Welcome to this week's episode, which is the first Six Queens Halloween special. And this is something that I am very excited about because Halloween is my favorite holiday. So I'm really excited that we are honoring our queens in the spooky season. I love that you come prepared with your hat, with your witch's hat. Yeah, it's a real shame that you guys can't see um, my witch's hat due to the the medium of audio. But um, yeah, I, yeah I, I like I- Halloween. I feel sufficiently underdressed sitting here in my, actually, tell a lie, I've got my glow-in-the-dark pyjamas on, which have bats on. So. There you go. And we, we need to be suitably dressed because this is an episode that is going to be suitably spooky. We are talking about the final resting places of many of our queens. And not necessarily going to be talking about the ghost stories, but the graves themselves and the actual physical remains of our queens, a lot of them have really interesting and a little bit gory histories. So we thought this would be the perfect topic for our Halloween special. I just can't talk about gore and graves and dismembered bodies when uh, a Halloween one, can you? Give it a go, see what happens. We thought we would organize this in maybe a different way than usual which you know it works for us we're gonna first talk about three queens who died as queens and they uh their deaths occurred in our timeline let's say of uh, the sort of official lineup of the queens they they died when henry was around and then in part two we're going to be talking about three queens who died away from court and away from henry and whose graves kind of reflect that a little bit more I think the way we kind of set out to do our conversations and the way we kind of envisioned our podcast going is it's probably not surprising to those of you who have listened to since day number one and for those of you who have thank you very much (laughs) that um getting away from that chronology and I think by looking at their graves out of that that set narrative helps us understand them a little bit more and I think sheds a lot of light on them and uh their, their resting places really so Shall we kick off then with Jane Seymour? Because, you know, the middle's also a great place to start. <laughs> Let's start there. Jane Seymour, in terms of the lineup, I think has the most sort of, I don't know, least politically dramatic death. So it seems like a good place to start, something to ease us into all the other ones, which are a little bit... Uh. Yeah, I, I think hers is a, hers is very, very straightforward. And one that's definitely left probably one of the biggest imprints besides the violent deaths that you know, we'll cover a bit later on the kind of historical imagination and, you know, how we understand 
her role as um, a wife of Henry VIII and as a queen. You know, there's always that understanding that she was Henry's quote-unquote one true love and, like, the love of his life. Probably for the reason that, you know, she died giving birth to his one and only son, Edward. So I think it goes back to that that earlier conversation that we were having, you know, about utility as a wife and as a queen and and, and what that means, really. You know, she, she was the one that out and out did the, quote, best job at giving him what he wanted and needed the most in the world. Jane's death, I think, was also the most, dare I say, conventional, just because she suffered the fate of so many other women of the period dying in childbirth was something that was always a risk when becoming pregnant uh so many women two of our queens died in childbirth so i think in that sense it wasn't you know it wasn't a violent death it wasn't i don't know politically tragic it was just the queen dying in childbirth which is sad and which really shook up henry don't get me wrong but in terms of conventionality like this is it was always a risk that they ran Jane, um, just for a little bit of context then, um, died on the 24th of October in 1537 and was only at age around 29. Um, and she actually died down at Hampton Court Palace uh, shortly after giving birth to Edward. And she's actually buried down at St George's Chapel in Windsor. I think what makes her death potentially unconventional in the sense that it was the most conventional is that she actually receives a queen's funeral she's buried in the vault at windsor and it's it's a bit of an odd one because um she was never actually meant to be uh, that that was never meant to be her final resting place she was actually meant to be buried in a tomb um with henry himself but it still wasn't finished after his death in 1547 um and while that work was meant to be carried on by his children never actually happened so Jane's final resting place was never her intended final resting place. I think it's worth noting just because um, it's it's interesting, but also it's a little bit creepy for our episode, is that uh, Jane is actually technically buried in two places. And it has to do with um, a process that we're going to be talking about a lot on today's episode. But it was a very common practice and I think still might be to um, embalm the bodies of the nobility. So this is something that they think helps preserve the body. They remove the the organs, um, including the heart. So actually, according to legend, and I think a source um, in, in Letters and Papers, which is a big tutor source, Jane's organs, all the stuff that they removed during the embalming process, were actually buried at Hampton Courts in the Chapel Royale. So um, a, lot of, a lot of ghost stories at Hampton Court revolve around Jane Seymour's heart being buried under the chapel floor. But then um, she laid in state in the Chapel Royale, and then she was taken to Windsor for burial. That idea of part of you being left potentially where you died or, you know, at a, a chapel somewhere separate. It's very, I don't know, it's kind of like ceremonial organ donating in a way. Another common theme we're going to be returning to many times in this episode is this idea of the Queen's graves being disturbed. And I think it's why we decided to do a whole episode about final resting places, because in a lot of senses, the Queen's weren't actually allowed to rest 
And in Jane's case, her final resting place, which was it's the vault under the floor of, of St. George's Chapel, Windsor, is literally just a big hole under the floor. It's nothing special. And so it's it was open several times to allow other coffins to be put in. So Jane's was the first, but then Henry joined her in 1547. And then actually, interestingly, it was also the holding place for King Charles I of England, who was beheaded during the English Civil War, and he joined her in 1649. And then another coffin that is in there with them is a really tiny coffin that historians believe belongs to one of the young children of Queen Anne and her husband, Prince George. Queen Anne tragically lost um, many or most all of her children. Um, So they think that this coffin belongs to one of those children. But it just goes to show you that this is always was always supposed to be kind of a temporary thing. Um, it's it's a holding place for all of these coffins. And Henry and Jane are are just kind of there because uh, this grand tomb that Henry envisioned for both of them never came to be. His children, I guess, did, did not want the expense and the burden of making that be. You know, normally when you think about a monarch's death or things like that, you tend to think, you know, big tombs, big like kind of epitaphs and things like that. And it's almost underwhelming, I think, when you then think about where they are and you're like, oh, really? And I, I think there's some kind of, I don't want to say delicious irony in it, but, you know, um, Henry, one of Henry VIII's like, kind of big objectives in life was to outshine his father, Henry VII, and then in, in death, didn't quite manage it. <laughs> And especially when you know that um, the the vault itself wasn't even really marked. Like, I think people had an idea that Henry and Jane were down there. Uh, Charles was a surprise, apparently, when they, um, in the early uh, 19th century, when they were doing some work on the church and, and they found people and Charles's coffin was there. And they're like, oh, that's where he ended up. Cool. But I think there was some idea that Henry and Jane were down there together, but it wasn't marked. Now, under the orders of King William IV in the 19th century, there is a marble slab on top of the vault, which has the names of Henry and Jane and King Charles I. So people know that it's there. Um, And if you watch any of the royal weddings recently in the last few years that took place in St. George's Chapel, it's the aisle where they all walk up to the altar. It's, It's right there. But yeah, as you were saying, for someone as big as Henry VIII, both physically and in our memory, it's it's just a slab in the ground, and it's certainly not what he envisioned for himself. A bit underwhelming, really. And I think as well, you know, for all the plans that he had for, like, what he wanted for Jane and her kind of final resting place to look like, to kind of honour her and what, what she did for him and the country, it's really underwhelming as well. But I guess in the end, she does have the distinction of actually being beside Henry, and Henry decided that that he did want to be with her, even in the, the sort of temporary holding space. He yeah. he wanted to be with her. So I think people have interpreted that pretty correctly over the years as, you know, that's the ultimate mark of favor. Like, you know, Jane appears in all these posthumous portraits and she's referred to as the favorite constantly. But the fact is that she's the one that Henry wanted to be buried with. She's the one who is buried with Henry now. So you can't really you can't really argue with that. No, I, I you you really can't. I I think that is absolutely right there. And as as we kind of mentioned before, it's it goes a long way of preserving that historical uh, imagining. You know, even if we've still got the, those one sided letters that survive between him and Anne, and you know he's got that idea of like turning her country upside down and things like that for her. You know, ultimately it's Jane. Ultimately she's who he wants in both life and death. 
Moving on to things that aren't so lovely, the other two deaths that occurred sort of in our timeline when when our queens were actually queens were the more traumatic ones. And we've talked about the deaths of Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard in our previous episode about the Tower of London. But now we're going to be talking more a little bit more specifically about uh, what happened to their bodies and their physical remains inside the church in the Tower of London, which is uh, St. Peter and Vincula, St. Peter in Chains. And they had very similar um, sort of stories about what happened to their body, their remains. So we are just going to sort of tie them up together and look at them a little bit in similar circumstances. So starting with Anne, Anne, of course, died on May 19th, 1536. She was beheaded by sword at the Tower of London. And it's interesting that her death was almost so well planned, like to the point of, you know, they sent for this execution, special executioner and the trial was basically decided for her, but they still went through the motions of it anyway. And all the men were executed, but nobody really thought about what happened to Anne after the, the head fell off the shoulders. When that happened, I, you kind of get the sense of people going like, oh, okay, it's over. But then the ladies who accompanied Anne to the scaffold are like, you know, no, we still have this body to take care of. We still have to bury her and treat her with some respect after she's been killed. So there was no coffin actually prepared for Anne. And they had to find a an old chest. It was a long chest that was used to store arrows in the armory. And so they put her in there with her head on her chest and they wrapped her a shroud which was common and they put her in the box and they buried her underneath the high altar of the church inside the tower where her brother George had just been interred a few days before so uh, the ground was was ready and fresh and that is where she was put and a few years later of course the ground was disturbed again because her other sort of sister queen and cousin uh, Catherine Howard was interred in basically the same place, a little ways away from Anne underneath the high altar at St. Peter at Vincula. Uh, Catherine Howard was also executed on Tower Green. She died on February 13th, 1542, and she was interred there as well. They did a little, I think they did a little bit more prep for her. She was buried in a, a nice coffin i think well not a nice one probably but the thing that marks them as being so similar is not only the exact place where they were buried but they were given traitors burials meaning that their their burials place sites were not marked they for a long time they both rest next to each other in unmarked graves it, it paints a devastating picture about the world that they were living in and how di- disposable they were as people and then once, as I mentioned, you know, once once our heads are off their bodies, it's a case of out of sight, out of mind. There, there was nothing, nothing else to be said about them or for them. It's let's just forget about them and move on. Especially considering that the graves went unmarked for so long. I mean, I think it was recorded that that's where they were, and that was the logical place to put them. They were very, they were buried in a church that was yards away from where they were actually executed. So it made sense that that's where they would be. But there was no stone in the pavement at all. They were just they were just there, and then they the floor tiles were put back over them. It was not supposed to be an honorable death. It was supposed to be um, humiliating in in a way. I just think it's interesting that nothing was done sooner 
I guess. Uh, we'll we'll get into what happened and what you can see today when you when you visit their graves. But you know, like during the reign of Elizabeth, for example, there was there was nothing done um, to to honor Anne in her place there. I guess because Elizabeth thought that it would be a little bit too risky to align herself with her mother, who was buried in an unmarked grave. But uh, I just think it's interesting that it, it took you know three four hundred years for there to be any recognition there. I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for you know someone who's trying quietly trying to figure out how how they can relate to their mother and you know kind of hold on to a little part of them and not having that place to go and mourn or anything like that must have been I have a heartbreaking effect and the idea that the, the the recognition that came for them later so for both Anne and Catherine was actually really only accidental so it was in like, uh, 1876, during the reign of uh, Queen Victoria, who ordered some work to be carried out on, on the chapel because it was fallen into a bit of a state of disrepair, that um, workmen stumbled across Anne and Catherine um, when they were trying to, of all things, make the floor more even and uh, kind of stabilise an uneven floor. It is nice, though, when you read the account of the uh, the restoration of the church in, in the 1870s, they were all very respectful. Like, I think they all they had an idea that they would find these human remains so they were trying to be as respectful as possible and so then when they started stumbling upon the remains you know basically where they thought they would find them they did their best to actually try to identify everybody and then rebury everybody with a little bit more honor and uh, and then mark them accordingly so it wouldn't just be sort of a slapdash like here are all the people we think are buried here they did their best to try to assign names to the remains that they found. They did not find Catherine Howard, actually, um, in the place where they thought she would be buried. They did not find anyone. And all of the other remains that they thought were female at the time, they thought were a little bit too old to have been somebody like Catherine, who was uh, who died when she was 18 or 19 years old. So, But they, they did find uh, someone that they thought would be Anne. And the description is actually very fascinating. And it's probably um, a little bit colored by some historical hindsight, but they described her as a female of between 25 and 30 years of age, which checks out, of a delicate frame of body and who had been of slender and perfect proportions. The forehead and lower jaw were small and especially well-formed. The vertebrae were particularly small, especially one joint, the atlas, which was that next to the skull, and that they bore witness to the queen's little neck. So a little bit of uh, of Victorian pathology for you all, but um, I just think it's interesting that, you know, we're going to get into some stories about people not being as respectful and, you know, people being a little bit um, just more interested in seeing the remains and getting close to the relics of these really interesting historical people. So it's nice to read that in this place, which has so often been associated with tragic, untimely death that they were uh, they were more respectful and they gave them the burial that they thought that uh, these people deserved. I, I love that Victorian imagery of this one's got a little neck, therefore is Anne. <laughs> By her own admission, she had a little neck. Yeah, so, you know, like I said, colored by a little bit of historical hindsight, but um, the best <laughs> they could do right. in 1876. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. And that's not to mock them at all. It just... I. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> With this story in particular, the the way that Anne and Catherine are handled so gently and so carefully and respectfully, while they had to wait a little bit of time 
to have that in their death I think it's fitting that someone finally did that for those people finally did that for them and and cared for them Today, if you would like to go pay your respects to Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howard, you can. The church is open to visitors during parts of the day at the Tower of London. I don't think you can go up directly to the high altar and really get to see them up close, but you can uh, you can see the relative area where you were where they were buried. And uh, yeah, like we said, they're they're marked now. They are not unmarked graves anymore. And actually, every uh, May 19th, there is a bouquet of red roses left on Anne's grave to remember her. Catherine doesn't really get the same attention as Anne, unfortunately, um, even though they were victims of relatively the same consequence. And, uh, you know, her, her remains weren't even identified during all this restoration. But she does indeed have a marker, if not all of the same attention. So now what we're going to do is we are going to have a look at um, our other three queens. So we're going to be taking a look at Catherine of Aragon, Catherine Parr and Anne of Cleves. And these three, they, they didn't die as queens, which sets that their kind of deaths and um, up, apart from, from the other three um, who we were just having a chat about. Much like the other three then, we'll just do a little bit of scene setting and then we can jump into some juicy details that I know Kate's got brimming under her hat. So, Catherine of Aragon. Catherine died on the 7th of January, uh, 1536, and she was only 49 when she died. So, she actually died at Kimbolton Castle, quite a way outside of London, and I'll come back to that in a second. Um, And she's buried at Peterborough Cathedral. With Catherine's death, there is, I think it's fair to say, a lot of humiliation and a lot of embarrassment that, you know, goes hand in hand with how she died and where she died. So Catherine actually died in relative poverty and obscurity, I think is fair to say, by the end of her life, compared to her heyday as um, Queen of England. She was, you know, forced out of London, forced away from the court and, you know, uh, life that she knew and even forced away from her daughter, ultimately to stop her garnering any support for her marriage um, that she had with Henry um, and any support that she had that, you know, she was the one true Queen of England. Effectively, she was out of sight out of mind so Henry and Anne could get on with their marriage and they could start building Anne as the the one true queen of England which for someone like Catherine of Aragon you know literally died on a hill defending her claim that she was the queen of England so to then end her life um and it's even it was even on her grave that you know she was the uh dowager princess of Wales not the queen it makes your blood boil, doesn't it? Yeah, Catherine's death, I think, more so than any others, uh, is wrapped up in the most political controversy, just because there's so many rumors surrounding her death, and there's so many slights when it comes to her burial and her funeral. Um, I mean, even when they were embalming her, as we said, this was something that was done, they opened her up, and they saw that her heart actually was black, 
And today we interpret this as she probably suffered from some kind of cancer. But at the time, it it made for all sorts of rumors about how Catherine was actually poisoned by Henry or Anne or both, take your pick, um, who actually there are some accounts of them actually celebrating Catherine's death. We don't know if they're true or not, but um, then, you know, coupled with this idea of her being poisoned, it just makes for a really messy situation. That's a good game of historical Cluedo in there somewhere by 16th century standards. <laughs> As Callie said, you know, um, Catherine, just slight upon slight at this point. So she was buried not as the Queen of England, but as the Dowager Princess of Wales and away from London, which Henry thought would be better because he wanted to make us a little bit more hush-hush. Um, he thought that if she was buried in London, it would encourage lots of mourners to come, which would, uh, you know, be a slight on Anne Boleyn, who was queen at this point. So she was buried in a relatively modest tomb at Peterborough. She was buried near the high altar, which is a place of honor, but the tomb again, was more befitting of a, a a noble rather than an actual queen of England. It was pretty modest, and we do have one description of it from a little bit later, which says that it was a low table monument raised on two shallow steps with simple, simple quarterfoils carved in square set diamond-wise. So a little bit of decoration. It was raised off the floor, but it wasn't great. And actually, there was an altar nearby. So later on, during like Elizabeth the first reign, when there was a little bit more anti-Catholic sentiment, it was a place where Catholics could go and pray. Some people have attributed miracles to this spot. So it ended up sort of going against what Henry wanted, and people did go there. But again, it, there was no glitz or gold about it. It was just kind of there. Because that's what was expected, not because, you know, there was any kind of, I suppose, love lost there or anything like that. But, you know, that that's too easy. That's too easy for, for poor Catherine, who actually had her tomb vandalised in April of 1643 by the troops of Oliver Cromwell during the English Civil War. But as Kate was saying, there was an altar on it or nearby it, which made it a target. So in a kind of like a, a swell of anti-Catholic sort of sentiment that was again gathering speed again in the, you know, the 1600s, it was um, destroyed. By the time 1895 rolls around, finally we start to see a bit of good fortune for Catherine and her given the respect that she deserves. So on her tomb that um, the Catherines of England um, fundraised for, um, people paid a penny uh, to raise, uh, they, people paid a penny for a new installation to have her tomb restored um, and brought back to its former glory. She's actually named as Catherine of Aragon on her tomb. It took a little while to get there, but we finally, uh, you know, she was finally gotten there and she is in gold lettering. She says that she's Catherine, Queen of England. I love, too, that the fundraising was um, the, the fellow, the Catherines of England, like everybody, I guess, named Catherine is supposed to feel some kind of pity for this woman and donate a penny who uh, gave her a proper burial. But, you know, hey, it worked. And uh, now she is buried according to uh, her, her true status, which is what she would want. Although, even though her burial is nice now, there are a couple stories of her grave actually being disturbed. Um, and like little souvenirs being taken even, which is a little bit disturbing. And it's just, it's, I don't, I don't like to think of these people who have suffered so much in life being exhumed by, especially the Victorians, for like thrill-seeking 
almost. So, so Catherine's grave was disturbed twice that has been recorded. Uh, the first time was actually a little bit more respectful. It was by researchers who wanted to validate or disprove the claim that Catherine's friend Maria de Salinas had actually been buried in the tomb with her. Maria was a loyal friend, and there, I guess there was a rumor for a really long time that they had been buried together. But alas, they opened the tomb and they saw one coffin there, which they decided was Catherine's and then you know they were nice and they left it alone but later in the 1890s the tomb was opened again around the time that the Catherine's of England were fundraising for this you know more impressive memorial for her and they actually opened the coffin this time to see what they could find and they saw Catherine's skeleton through the shroud they didn't necessarily disturb it but they still I mean they they opened the coffin and uh, they took a little bit of her shroud as a souvenir which is just a I don't know. I don't get it. <laughs> Again, it's very Victorian, isn't it? There's that fascination with death and not poking it with a stick, but let's see what we, let's look at it for the, almost the sake of looking at it really, isn't it? Curiosity getting the better of people. But what I do really love about Catherine's grave, and I think it's, again, somewhat contrary to what Henry wanted, it's not necessarily a shrine to her, but the fact that people will go and put pomegranates on it you know, go back to that symbol of Catherine of Aragon, symbol um, of her as a queen. People will go and, you know, pop, pop a pomegranate down um, for her and, you know, maybe take a picture with it or something. So, again, not a shrine per se, but a point of gathering for people who have, for one reason or another, whether it's religious affiliations with her or kind of just historical, a, a love of her as a historical person, I think it's brilliant. It is sad, though. Like, I'm glad that she has this nice tomb. And it's it's really lovely to think about people honoring her in the way that she definitely should be honored. But it's just sad when you think about all of the trauma that not only she went through in her last days, but then uh, the people around her, the people who were loyal to her, like Maria de Salinas or like her daughter Mary, um, in seeing their friend and mother and loved one go through such a humiliation and, uh, you know, Mary actually in her will had plans to move Catherine and she wanted there to be a tomb constructed in Greenwich, I believe, for both of them together so that they could be together forever and that they could have a, a nice tomb, you know, showing them as they should be remembered. But uh, that did not happen. And Mary, which is a whole other can of worms, is now buried underneath Elizabeth I in Westminster Abbey. So both Catherine and Mary suffered that sort of slight after death of uh, not being remembered the way that they should have for a very long time, and Mary still isn't. I do feel for them. I feel for both. Actually, to be fair, I think there's an element of feeling for all six of these women, you know, that we we, we talk about um, with such fondness and such passion, I think. Really, nothing ever really seems to go their bloody way for, not for lack of trying, let's be clear. Something always you know there's, there's always a turn up that throws them off course in a, in a sense and I just I don't know sorry just general musings on the situation really but uh, yeah it's it's a struggle I think sometimes to try and reconcile that that the fact of what happened to them and you know that we can go and for, for the most part you, know, you can go see them in one way or another but remembering that they're people and that, that, that their fates weren't happy. 
And Catherine, too, like, went through 20 years of marriage sort of expecting that she would be the one buried with Henry. And when we talk about Henry planning this tomb for him and Jane, I think he was just generally planning a tomb for himself and his wife, much in the same way that um, his parents, Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, are buried together in this beautiful joint tomb with effigies right next to each other. Uh, Henry actually hired that sculptor to do his tomb for him and his wife, who was Catherine. So the idea was that Catherine was the one who was going to be buried in this glorious joint tomb with Henry as his queen. And yet that became a completely different story. And now we're talking about Catherine's grave where, you know, she's all by herself, basically, in, in Peterborough, which is miles away from anyone who was in her family or who she cared about. So yeah, it's just... There's a there's an element of sadness to all of these burials, not just because they, they were people who died, but because the burials themselves are not necessarily reflective of their lives and their status. But I think Catherine's is definitely one of the saddest in that way. Kind of sticking with that theme of disturbed burials and disturbed sort of afterlives, I suppose, I think that brings us neatly on to Catherine Parr, who, much like Jane Seymour, died um, shortly after childbirth. And it's, it's worth just remembering, you know, she she died a little bit after Henry VIII, so she actually died on the 5th of September 1548. Um, and she was about 36 years old, and she was actually uh, married to Thomas Seymour at this point the brother of Jane Seymour so she actually um you know, we, we spoke about them a little bit last week during uh, uh, uh and about their time together at Chelsea Palace um but that's not where she actually died she died at Sudley uh Thomas's country estate and is buried at the chapel at Sudley Castle much like the others you know she, she had a, a relative period of peace and she actually laid in peace for about 200 years um which you know it's nice but again, much like Catherine, she was no stranger to the um, to the English Civil War, <laughs> and the, the, the castle itself, I should say, it suddenly was actually destroyed um, during the Civil War because it was a base for uh, a royalist base. So after uh, Sudley fell into ruins, Catherine had a, a little while where she could rest, actually rest in peace. But the ruins became sort of a local uh, exotic place to travel a lot of people would want to travel to the ruins because they looked romantic or else they were again thrill seekers they were they were hunting for this sort of lost Tudor queen so Catherine's body actually has quite a history after she was interred Catherine like the others was embalmed And we know from various accounts of her being exhumed, sadly, over the years that she was particularly well embalmed because the state of preservation seems to just be amazing. And Catherine, throughout the the late 1700s and a little bit into the, the 19th century as well, Catherine's grave was exhumed at least 10 times that I've been able to find. And it was because people were curious about in much the same way that I guess people are curious about Catherine of Aragon or Anne Boleyn or Catherine Howard, people were really wanted to get close to a, a famous historical figure. So the first time she was uh, exhumed, it was actually by two women who had come to the chapel in search for her, who actually hired somebody to do the digging for them. Agnes Strickland, the Victorian historian, she recounts this in her book. But uh, the the thing that stuck with them most once that they had brought up the coffin and cut through the lead that enclosed Catherine's body was that Catherine's eyes 
were in a perfect state of preservation. Like they saw Catherine Parr's eyes, which just, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Again, I don't get it. Well, that's going to stick with me for a while. Just for those yeah. of you out there who are interested in history and in the embalming process, please don't use this as an excuse to go around and digging up people. That We're not advocating for that in the slightest. Happy Halloween. But the, the fun <laughs> does not stop because, like I said, there were a lot more times. Uh, the, the main offender whose name comes up quite a bit in the saga is a man named John Lucas who lived nearby. I think he was a cleric. And um, in 1782, he also went in search of Catherine's coffin and, again, exhumed it and brought up the coffin. It had already uh, been disturbed in some way, he said, but he went on and he disturbed it further. I think he was looking for, I guess, confirmation that this was indeed Catherine Parr. And they actually cut through the shroud, not all of it, but only a little bit over her arm. And he said that the skin was still, quote, white and moist. I'm I'm a fervent believer that you never use that word anyway. That is no word that, that moisture never be used, let alone when you're poking around somebody's body. I just, it, yeah. Oh. There's something to be said for morbid curiosity, but again, stop poking the dead people. Uh, John Lucas was also the one who started this trend, apparently, of taking little bits of Catherine to have as a souvenir. So like Catherine of Aragon, where they they took a little bit of her shroud. um, In this case, they were actually taking little bits of Catherine. So John Lucas took uh, a lock of her hair, but then in subsequent exhumations by other weird tourists, I guess, they took little things like uh, her teeth. So actually at the museum at Sudley Castle today, you can see all these little bits of Catherine Parr's corpse that were taken by people over the years. But it's interesting in all of the subsequent exhumations, which happened in the 1780s and the 1790s and then into 1800, she becomes more decomposed, I guess, like the embalming process becomes a little bit less effective because she's being exposed to air so often. So every description that we have of an exhumation, which are many, unfortunately, she becomes a little bit freakier. I think being constantly subjected to having bits of you chipped off will do that to a person. The story that I found the weirdest was that the locals apparently were very much aware that this was happening. And it was it was sort of a local lore story of like, hey, there's a dead queen in this ruined chapel. Let's go to have a look. So in the summer of 1782... They rounded up a little group, and the idea was that they were going to go find Catherine, but they were going to reinter her to prevent all of this uh, stuff from happening anymore. But unfortunately, they had dinner before, and they all got really drunk. So by the time they made it to Catherine and they exhumed her, nobody was really interested in reburying her with honor. They all, again, they they took stuff. They took linen uh, from her shroud. They took her hair. They took her teeth. Poor Catherine. The poor woman. A comforting word to everybody. This is the most gruesome story that we have on today's episode. So after this, it actually de-escalates very quickly. Uh, we'll finish up with Catherine, but just just a word that this is about as graphic as it gets. I mean, to be fair, it's pretty graphic. It it sounds like something from a movie. But I would watch that horror movie, though. 
like Catherine Parr comes back to haunt all these people who steal her teeth, I would watch that. Oh no! Oh dear! I, I'm not about that. What she just goes around collecting? Like, how would that look? She just goes around collecting them and putting them back in, or it's like you know how in Pirates of the Caribbean, when all of the pirates are cursed because they took the gold out of the chest, it's like that. Oh, but Catherine that... Parr haunts them until she has all of her teeth back. Oh, I, I kind of I'd be there for that. That that's fun. Less horror movie than I was expecting. <laughs> I think in terms of, as far as graphic goes, in terms of bodies being exhumed and things like that, pretty up there. Again, and I, th- I think kind of partly what it goes back to is that we tend to see these people as characters and, you know, forget that they're people, which I think is very much kind of what goes on with Catherine Parr. You know, there's that idea with, the lo- as you were mentioning, you know, the locals, like, guess, guess who's over there? Guess who's buried there? It's a queen. And I, I suppose in a sense it ties in with that idea of the myth of monarchy and things like that and people wanting a piece of the a, a a king or a queen because you know if you said oh it's bob from down the road the fascination disappears the good news is that very much like Catherine of aragon Catherine parr is okay now um that seems to be the moral of the story is that you know people mess with these graves for hundreds of years but now in modern day you can actually you can go visit and um pay your respects properly please do not exhume Catherine ever again. Around the time that the the weird party happened where they were going to rebury her but didn't, the same man who started, seemed to have started all of this, actually thought, yeah, you know, this has been getting out of hand. And he buried her in a different place so that people wouldn't be able to find her anymore. And then when uh, Sudley, the estate, was brought under new ownership, they found her again and uh, they hid her again, but in a in a more respectful way, so that when they restored the chapel in the 1860s, they moved her into the resting place she has now, which is a much more appropriate uh, tomb. It has a really beautiful marble effigy on top. And um, as I said, you can go visit it today and pay your respects. I suppose all's well that ends well in that case for her, but that's a lot. That's a lot going on. It brings us on to um, the last queen who we decided to end with just because um, after this particularly sensational story, it is a little bit more comforting that when Anne of Cleves died, she was actually interred in Westminster Abbey in a place of honor. So as we said last week, when Anne of Cleves died, it was in London in 1557 she was about 42 years old and her her stepdaughter and her friend mary the first thought so highly of her that she insisted that anne be buried at westminster abbey quite close to the shrine of edward the confessor and the medieval kings and queens who are all buried at westminster abbey and her her tomb is right on the high altar so actually if you're a tourist today you can't get up close to it you can see the back of it which has a little epitaph labeling it as the grave of Anne of Cleves the Queen of England but uh, the the tomb itself is actually a very nice tomb right off the high altar you can see it if you go to the museum and look down from above but it's carved with um, Anne's initials and her carbuncle badge crowns and English lions a lot of symbols of royalty and then um, a couple skulls as well some memento mori so uh, actually the most queenly of our burials I would think right yeah, I, I I think that's fair to say. That is very much thanks to Mary having her buried at Westminster Abbey. I think it's a sure and far way of preventing skin being picked off, you know, royalists coming and disturbing you or ending up in an unmarked grave or anything like that. 
I just think it's so fitting for Anne, Anne of Cleves, quote-unquote, afterlife. She was really living her best life after her divorce. It's very fitting for her. And I only wish that our other, our other ladies could have had the same end. Knowing that at least one of them has is somewhat comforting. Yeah, on the list of notes I made when I was researching for this episode, I noticed that Anne's is a bit stubby compared to the other ones. I mean, like I have a whole page on the the shenanigans with Catherine Parr and a whole page on the political implications of Catherine of Aragon and all the exhumations of uh, Anne Boleyn, Catherine Howard. And yet where Anne is concerned, it's literally just she was buried in a nice place in Westminster Abbey. The end. And it really is the end because, like you said, it's in Westminster Abbey. No one's going to open up the tomb. There's no risk of anything happening. So Anne, in that sense, is boring for us because it's not really a story that we can tell like the other ones. But that's that's what you want. <laughs> it really is. By, by any kind of stretch of the imagination, especially by 16th century standards, you know, she had a nice life. She had a nice death. I mean, if we can imagine them having some sort of like council in the afterlife and everyone's like, you know, so how how are you? How are you down on Earth? Like, how are you? And Anne is really the only one who's like, yeah, you know, no one's seen me since I went in there. It's it's all good. I'm just having a nice time. I'm just here. <laughs> I mean, if, if we're honest, if they were all this unremarkable, we wouldn't have an episode. We'd be talking about something else today. I think it's just very important that we're able to bring these conversations to the forefront and kind of have them and look at them, really, because, you know, as we were saying at the start, that they're never really part of the conversation. Yeah, it's not even researching it. it was, it's hard to find anything about it other than where they were buried when actually the story continues so much. And, you know, with the exception of Catherine Parr, that's a little bit more Halloweeny. But with all the other ones, the, what happened to their physical remains does have so much implications for their stories. You know, Jane Seymour being left in a tomb with Henry VIII, awaiting the construction of a grander tomb that would never become. Or uh, Catherine Howard and Anne Boleyn being in unmarked graves until relatively recently. Uh, Catherine of Aragon, again, only relatively recently being honored the way that she should. The story continues on. So... I'm glad that we have this episode because we can talk about it. But um, <laughs> as you said, it, we shouldn't have to. They should all be like Anne of Cleves, right? There, there is a serious side of this. And like you said, their legacies are being continued and they are evolving. And I think it prompts an interesting conversation about what that will look like in the future and kind of how they evolve next. Thinking about your own experiences, how many have you been to? Because like I've been to... I guess I've seen Jane Seymour and I've seen Anne Boleyn and Catherine Howards and I've seen Anne of Cleves. You know, from the from the four I have seen, there is a great sense of tranquility when you go there. Like like they are finally at peace in some way. And even when you know the story of how they got there and all all the crap that they had to endure, even in and how they were buried, there is there is a nice sort of sense of reverence when you when you go. Uh, even if you're not necessarily leaving anything, you're just you're just visiting them. I remember the first time I went to see Catherine Howard and Anne Boleyn. Um, I was actually very lucky. I went on. I was I was at the Tower of London on a very quiet day, so there wasn't anybody else really apart from me and the uh, one of the beef eaters um, actually in the chapel. And I kind of got to just stand there and kind of look at them. Having that point where you can go and visit them and be within touching distance of them is quite a powerful thing 
in contrast to the stories we have of all the people who, you know, wanted to literally physically be close to these people, not just standing in front of their graves or above their graves, but actually exhuming them and getting a piece of their shroud or their hair or whatever. It's nice to know that we have this reverence um, when we go where we we want them to be undisturbed. Uh, we, we want to show our respects and we want to feel that closeness, that proximity, but not necessarily at um, the expense of their honor, let's say. No, definitely, definitely won't be wearing them as a skin suit, as a Halloween outfit this weekend. I'm going to say that. For, to me, that's uncomfortable. <laughs> it's also interesting, though, because the topic of exhumation is sort of uh, topical right now in the historical community, especially following the rediscovery of the remains of King Richard III in 2013 and won't get into that but <laughs> no 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 no, no. Different, different story different day <laughs> but it's interesting how now uh, because of all of the the research that's come from the physical remains of Richard III like we have a modern DNA profile for him now for example it's interesting to see historians postulating about like what would happen if we dug up Henry VIII and we tested him or what would happen if we actually exhumed Catherine of Aragon to see if she really did die of cancer or poison it's just those debates are coming back around which I which I find interesting it's something I struggle with I think because where does one's curiosity about these people and how they died and things like that end and where does respect for the individual start you know vice versa I just, I, I don't know I I think it's interesting when when you know people have done this research and things like that I always find the results incredibly interesting and and just very much that give me more but I'm I'm always very torn I don't know how you feel about how do you feel about that I would agree I think there's a fine line between wanting to know as much as we can about these people and just letting them be dead you know um it to me a lot of the stories we've told about the exhumations of the queens did start with good intentions of like you know, let's find out how many people are actually buried here or the floor is uneven. So let's make sure that we restore this chapel. And in the process, we can bury these people with honor. That's great. But at some point, you got to just let them rest. Um, and and doing this again, I don't necessarily know if it would tell us anything anyway, because in the case of many of these queens, they probably have very little remains left I mean, Catherine Parr, by the last time they had opened up her coffin, was already mostly decomposed. So I don't know what would be left anyway. So it's just, it's interesting and it's tempting. It's really tempting to be able to solve all these mysteries. But at some point, we just got to let them go. So it was fun to go through all these stories, though, and uh, give it a little bit of a spooky twist for Halloween. But um, as always, you know, as the people who study these queens and uh, and you know we we love them and we admire them in our own ways you you do have to you have to show the respect for them in the end and uh, just squirm a bit when you think of all of the things that they've had to go through even after they were technically done go to sleep and dream of gooey eyes and moist white skin and stay tuned for the um, the film that Callie and I are now going to be co-writing about Catherine Parr <laughs> haunting all of these awful people who disturbed her rest. The Revenge of Catherine Parr. <laughs> I love it. I, it's all I want now. So if we don't get to it, I really hope somebody who's listening to this will first because that's less work for me.
actually surprise plot twist no more podcast we're writing a movie now <laughs> send us a tweet if you want to get on board we're recruiting <laughs> happy halloween guys thanks for <laughs> thanks for sticking with us and listening to our bad movie pitches <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this series of Six Queens. We'll be back after Christmas with a whole new series for you guys to listen to. So make sure you continue to follow us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And make sure to tune in to our holiday special in December. Also wanted to say thank you to everybody who has made doing these first two seasons such a success. So for all of you who have subscribed, who have listened, who have listened to our drive runs, um, thank you ever so much. And a massive shout out to all of our friends who have helped us design our websites, design our logos, and just stuck with us and supported us. It, it really does mean a lot. So we'll see you in the new year. Bye. Thank you.